You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Lonnie Bunch, Secretary of the Smithsonian, and Anthea Hartig, the Director of the National Museum of American History, join the Post to discuss the challenges museums face as they reopen to the public. Let's listen. Good morning, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large, and I am delighted to chat today with Lonnie Bunch, the Secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, and also the first African-American to hold that title, as well as Anthea Hardick, and she's the Director of the National Museum of American History, and she too is a trailblazer, the first woman to hold that position. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robin. Hello, Lonnie. Good to see you. I, I, <laughs> I thought I would uh, start with a bit of the bad news and then we'll end with the good. Um, I know 2020 was a really challenging year for museums. Um, 80% of them reported a loss in revenue. Um, Secretary Bunch, I am wondering how the Smithsonian fared economically during the pandemic. Well, I think like every institution, the Smithsonian suffered. Um, the benefit of the Smithsonian, the great strength, candidly, is that it has support from the federal government. So we were able to maintain that support. But then we basically lost a lot of money um, with the shops closing, the restaurants closing. So we had to make the kind of hard decisions, trying to protect staff. Most of the senior staff took pay cuts. We did a variety of things to make sure that we would keep the Smithsonian moving forward despite the bad economic times. And with um, the Museum of uh, American History, um, uh, Director Hardick, I mean, what were the challenges that um, you faced specifically with that museum? Oh, well, thank you for asking. You know, as, as Lonnie shared, we all took, took part in uh, the loss of earned revenue in particular. Um, and really, of course, you know, we live to welcome people through our doors, right? We welcome just for the American History Museum, approximately four to five million people a year and reach another eight or so million online. So like so many museums across the nation, we pivoted. We, um, 100% of the museums that are in our broader Made by Us coalition who responded to a survey changed and did their work online. So it was a remarkable year, of course, cascading crises, uh, none the least of which was viral. Um, that in which we learned how to do our work differently. We still collected and tried to uh, be in public service to so many, but it was uh, remarkably challenging when, uh, as Lonnie well knows, we exist to bring people in, to educate, uh, to embrace them in a, on a journey of, of learning. So it was, uh, it's been a remarkable year. And as you know, it's continuing well into 2021. I mean, I, I'm curious because I, I know that so many of us have those memories of being, you know, on a, a class field trip and the joy of being able to go into museums and see things in person, touch the things that we're allowed to touch. Um, how was that transition to virtual for, for the museum? And, and were you really sort of prepared out of the gate to be able to do that? Well, I think what's important mm. is that as Anthea said, 
we immediately pivoted because we realized that the key was that though our buildings were closed, the Smithsonian should not. And so by pivoting, we were able to push out educational material, push out scholarship. Um, the numbers of people that drew from our online work was really astonishing. Um, you know, 100% growth in, in all areas. What it really means though, is that it allowed us to think about how do we do some of the things we needed to do anyway? The challenge is to really think about how are these museums both places of tradition and places of innovation? And being able to pivot digitally allowed us to sort of get our information out, learn more from our audiences about what they needed, and in essence, be of value to them at a very difficult time. The challenge really is now to anticipate what is that tension between tradition and innovation? How do we make sure that when people come into museums, they create informal communities where they don't know each other, but they learn from each other by the conversations? How do we do that online? So I think the challenge is to make sure that we never move away from using our bricks and mortar as the key, but to recognize we have opportunities to think different ways because of the technology and the possibilities therein. Just to follow up on that, I think oftentimes we tend to think of digital as being um, some allowing people to have more people to have greater access. Um, but I'm also wondering if you found challenges related to the digital divide uh, where people simply don't have the, the kind of uh, broadband that they really need to fully experience a digital museum. I mean, uh, Director Hardick, if you wanted to address that. Surely, um, and, and Lonnie has, knows as well that it's it's both the individuals and the communities, often isolated, often rural, some um, especially of our, our, our um, fellow Americans and, and tribal nations that don't have the kind of access that, you know, the stories of, of, of children going to school on their parents' iPhones, you know, the, the, the huge challenges that we face in equity. The Smithsonian, um, I think, and, and so many museums across the nation really took that to heart and took that charge to heart. How we could provide written materials, published materials, printed materials, along with our digital materials, when best to even hold workshops and seminars for teachers and parents or parents who became teachers. So we really thought through the lens of equity um, and accessibility and inclusivity, uh, as well, of course, as justice, um, that Lonnie's leadership, of course, telegraphs to all of us, but that we really, I think, pushed forward in ways that we had not in, in, in the past. So. I don't know, Lonnie, if you think that's, yeah. is that a fair assessment? I think, yeah. I think that's right. I think that in essence, what we've said is the Smithsonian is about fairness. So that means that as we pivoted digitally, we made sure we did no tech and low tech um, to make sure that we can serve all these communities. But at the heart of this was recognizing that this was a dual pandemic. That yes, it's about the virus and illness, but it's also about the illness of racism. So what was really crucial for us was also to pivot to that, to say that the Smithsonian is this amazing place, but it has a responsibility to help a country at a time of crisis. It has a responsibility to be as much about today and tomorrow as it is about yesterday. And so with people like Anthea leading us, we were able to make sure that we gave the public tools 
to understand the challenges they face, to contextualize issues of race, to basically contribute in any ways we could to helping a country be made better by understanding itself in ways that it maybe hadn't before. I, I so want to talk more about that subject, but before we, we get there, I did want to just sort of give people a sense of some of the lo logistics as the doors open. Uh, what sort of safety precautions are, are you taking? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the Smithsonian's are among the most visited museums in the world. So how are you sort of going to navigate the issue of the sheer volume of people who want to be there in person? Well, first of all, safety is our number one goal. That was why we closed to protect our staff, um, to protect the public. What we recognized is that one of the most important things we had to do was to control the numbers. So if you remember, when we created the African-American Museum, we had people get time passes. Well, we took this notion and basically used time passes as a way to limit the crowds, allow us to social distance. We've encouraged people, obviously, to wear masks. We've tested out a variety of things to make sure that as the public comes back, one, they're safe, two, they can enjoy the museums, and three, that they can still find the interactions that make the museum visit special. So for us, the bottom line is test, 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 get the best science that we can, and make sure that we're making decisions that allow as many people as possible to revel in the doors of the, of the Smithsonian when our doors are open. Yeah. Absolutely. Have a, yeah. Oh, oh, please. We continue. also took the oh, just real quickly. We also took the opportunity to make sure that our air handling, our circulation of uh, both with people and um, uh, and uh, and objects uh, were as safe as they could be. And we learned a lot. You know, we were open briefly in the fall. Some of the Smithsonian museums were. We also learned a lot from our colleagues around the nation. Some of whom closed very briefly and reopened as early as May or June last year. So it is a, it's a, it's a beautiful community of, of, of museums and museum leaders that Lonnie and uh, especially um, uh, and I uh, now are a part of. So there's a great cross-sharing of, of information. So we're convinced we can do it safely uh, as we reopen this, this uh, spring and summer. We, we have a great question from um, the audience, from Jean Brandt from mm -hmm. Illinois. What have museums learned about patrons and supporters during the pandemic? I, I think that's such an interesting question because I think that we've all learned a lot about our friends, our neighbors, our family during the pandemic. Um, so I'm curious what you've learned from, from uh, your patrons. Well, I think that what's important, first of all, is to recognize that this is a real opportunity to know our visitors, our patrons better than ever. Um, yeah. That museums have, over the last 20 years, worked hard to say, we want to understand our communities. But this has really challenged us because our visitors have changed. There's a fragility. There's a sense of ambiguity. There's a sense of fear. So part of what we wanted to learn was, what did the visitors need? What did they expect from us? And one of the things that was really clear was, yes, they wanted us to follow all the safety protocols, but they wanted us to be able to be open so they can dip into that reservoir of history, art, and culture. 
Um, we also learned that what the visitors were concerned about is that some visitors immediately, almost 25% said, we would come back as soon as the doors were open. Another 25% said, let's see how it plays out over four or five weeks. But another 50% said they wanted to just see over time how the virus would, would, would mutate, how the museums would change. So in essence, what it taught us more than anything else is that we had to be nimble. We had to embrace the ambiguity. We had to understand the fears of the public. And by doing that, we hope we create a better environment for them when they come back either digitally or actually. Mm-hmm. You know what, Did you uh, Raman, um, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, yeah. I think we also learned oh. that we are we remain a very trusted source of information. Um, the American Alliance of Museums did a big study in 2018, then then we did a, a subsequent survey last fall, and over 97% of Americans said that they trust the information they receive from museums, and, and in particular, of course, this, the Smithsonian so that's a that's a sacred obligation in a way that we have to make sure that the information, the science, the history, the the culture that we are sharing with people is 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 fact based, is the highest. We hold ourselves to the highest scholarship, um, and to really make sure we're giving them what they need, as Lonnie said, to navigate these incredibly challenging times. So we've learned a lot about our audience, even though we've we've been apart for them physically. I mean, Robin, in some ways, the real question is, how do museums demonstrate their value, right? And at this moment raises Mm -hmm. fundamentally different questions. So that, yes, it's a great opportunity to sort of be informally educated in museums. Yes, it's a place of inspiration and escape. But the real question is, how are museums of value both traditional ways great exhibitions, wonderful collections, but also in non-traditional ways, giving people tools to grapple with issues of race, giving people understanding about vaccines and the evolution of vaccines. So in essence, really saying, how do you make sure museums are of value by having a strong contemporary resonance to what they do? And I think that's the challenge is to recognize that going forward, museums are going to have to demonstrate that Yes, they're trusted, but they're also the place that uses that trust to help a country grapple with what divides it, what scares it. How has the role of museums changed at a time when, as you said, the country is really sort of grappling with the idea of what is truth and is parts of the country have, has, have become suspicious of a fact and facts have become fuzzier for a lot of people. I mean, what role does the museum play in clarifying what is so often becoming murkier and murkier in the country? I think Anthea really framed it correctly, is recognizing that museums are a trusted source. So therefore, what we really should be driven by is scholarship, is expertise, is research. So in essence, the heart of what has been at the Smithsonian, research has always been the engine. That is really even more important today so that as people look through a thicket of information, they could come to museums, they could come to the Smithsonian and find clarity, find understanding, find truth, find facts. 
So in essence, it's been really important, as Anthea said, for us to make sure that we hold ourselves to the higher standards because the public maybe more than ever needs museums, needs the Smithsonian as a place they can trust. And we take that very seriously, that sacred obligation. I also think we're hearing um, from our audiences that they want just not one narrative. They don't want a kind of a grand narrative. They want many stories represented. They want to see themselves reflected in the stories, the art, the science that we share, that we collect, that we preserve, and that we digitize. So I think in many respects, especially our younger audiences want the information so that then they can apply their critical lens so that we can help them on, um, on their path towards an understanding. And really, I think in the end, especially uh, for public historians like Lonnie and myself, to help them find ways to enact their civic duty, right? To uphold both the fragility that we, you know, the nation of the democratic experiment in a Republican form of government that we are, um, as well as uh, their, uh, their own families, their own communities. So it's a, I, I think it's a, an incredible um, and growing sense of, of, of discord, uh, of, of discourse rather, and sometimes discord. Um, that we're um, participating in in the in the broader museum community. And I, and I would argue that what we're really talking about is giving people defining reality and giving hope. That's what museums can do at their best. And so I think that this notion of defining reality, a more diverse, mm -hmm. a more inclusive reality, but also giving people the hope that when you look back at history, you see these moments where there is great pain, but then there's moments where there are great leaps forward. So what we hope okay. is that what we're doing is giving people understanding, truth, comfort, but hope. How have the events of the last year, whether it be the pandemic or the, the racial justice protests, uh, the January 6th uh, attack at the Capitol, how have those things informed the collecting of the museum? Mm -hmm. And how does the museum avoid uh, allowing itself to um, become politicized when collecting from events that are themselves so politically fraught? Well, first of all, I would argue museums are always political. Um, the key is to find a, a way to show that you're being driven by scholarship when you're looking at multiple points of view. I think I've always been struck, and Anthea and Kevin Young, who now runs the African American Museum, have been brilliant in leading our rapid response. Because early in my career, there were many times I wanted to tell stories and there were no collections. And we realized that one of the major jobs of a museum is to collect today for tomorrow. Um, and so we recognize that one, we had to collect around George Floyd's, uh, George Floyd's murder. We had to collect around the January 6th insurrection. We had to actually look at how do we collect and interpret Black Lives Matter in a way that allows us to have material, but to actually be shaped, that collection be shaped by the community that we serve. So in essence, what is really crucial to me is to make sure, one, that we have this material for future interpretations, but two, to recognize that 
it's crucially important to help the public understand that these moments, though they're politically fraught, they're crucially important understanding who we are. And we hope that we can give people understanding because in some ways, the great challenge, but the great obligation and responsibility of a museum is if people trust us, we actually have people who will not talk to each other, but will come together around the work of museums like the Smithsonian. And that's what's special and needed, especially at a partisan time like this. Director Hardick, I mean, can you give us a sense of some of the um, some of the direction uh, in which the museum is looking in terms of adding to uh, its collection to reflect the last year, the last two years? Absolutely, Robin, and thank you. And thank you, um, Lonnie, for so beautifully contextualizing our work. Um, the, the joke is uh, that historians of the future will have to decide which quarter of 2020 uh, to study, or perhaps either 2021, uh, because it has been so, so much. So as Lonnie said, we we pivoted not just digitally, but we pivoted to a rapid response during a pandemic position in our collecting and crafted a collections um, strategy that would allow us to document the many, many uh, crises and experiences um, and pain and grieving and, and joy of, of the past um, year. So everything from the handmade sign from uh, New York's Chinatown, a restaurant saying, well, closed due to the pandemic, we'll, we'll be back in two weeks, right? So that ephemeral, right, that we're asking people to stay for us. We've collected um, and are, are going to collect masks from all over the nation. We were very blessed to, to collect the very first vial of the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Um, from uh, and the nurse, uh, the amazing nurse uh, up in New York, Dr. Uh, nurse Sandra Lindsay, who volunteered, who put her, her herself forth as a Trinidadian American woman uh, to be the very first person in the United States vaccinated. So we have her scrubs and her socks and her ID card, as well as the the first vials and all of the packing material uh, from that vaccine. So it's a huge range of, of objects. You know, we collected the early in the morning after the insurrection at, at the Capitol. Um, and from a historian's perspective, uh, the peaceful transference of power that's taken place almost every year since 1800, you know, to see that disrupted. Um, as Lonnie said, there are certain moments where you know you're in the grist, uh, the grist mill of history, and we're trying to collect within those spaces so that we can all remember and that we can continue to figure out ourselves uh, as a nation. I've Did often I joked. <laughs> <laughs> doing, doing fine. <laughs> thanks, 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 I, sir. I've often joked that I'm I'm waiting for uh, you know the brilliant historians to explain the last few years to me. I mean, how far in in to the future do we need to be before, you know, we start to make sense of what we've all just gone through and continue to go through? Well, it's interesting. Um, when I was in graduate school, you weren't supposed to talk about anything unless it was 50 years old. Um, <laughs> we've obviously changed. I think the the for me the key is historians bring an a, a way to 
understand and view something that's happening today. So I would argue, rather than wait, let's bring our best thoughts, our best interpretations forward now. Now, that may evolve over the next five years or 10 years, but I think it's too important for historians to just talk to themselves about the experience of today, but to bring that sort of insight, understanding where today is really part of a long stream of change and challenge. Point to where today is really an example where there are moments of hope and people coming together. I mean, the amazing sense of the world coming together to stand up to say the murder of George Floyd was wrong. I mean, that's really a powerful thing that you don't normally see and would be great for historians to contextualize that. So my sense is that while there is a risk of sort of, you know, being too present in the moment, I think I want the historian's eye, the, uh, the, uh, the eye of context, of understanding, of, un of looking at where this is new and where this is part of a long stream. That would help the, pe the public find understanding and contextualization at the moment they really need it, because it's needed now, not 20 years yeah. from now. That's beautifully said. Uh, I think context in particular is key. And, and as Lonnie said, that perspective. We've been through um, horrifying moments together this past year, year and a half. And we've been through horrifying moments, you know, in, in so many different eras of, of, of the nation's history um, and of humanity's history. So there's both kind of challenge and solace um, that I think we find as historians in this time that we are also in an incredible position to share that with so many uh, through the Smithsonian and through museums and, and colleagues uh, throughout the nation. Have you been encouraged or um, grown more concerned about our nation's ability to grapple with the difficult aspects of history? Um, keeping in mind that um, we didn't really seem to have learned very much from the history of the, the influenza pandemic, that we still have problems uh, recognizing the history of voting rights legislation. Are, are we getting better or, or worse at um, coming to terms with and welcoming a conversation about history? I think that what you're seeing is that Americans are people that are often ahistorical, right? That there are certain parts of the history one knows, but other parts they don't. But I think part of what you're seeing now over the last 30 years is historians bringing forth a variety of issues that will help the public explore materials. So, for example, there's great scholarship. On the, on the flu epidemics of 1918 and 1919. The challenge is now to make sure history gets out there, that history is explored in museums, um, in films, in television. And I think the key is that the public now is thirsty for understanding. And history can provide some of that understanding and can quench that thirst. So my hope is that we'll be able to, through the work that we do, museums around the world, will be able to provide that reservoir of possibility, of understanding, of clarity. And I think it's really incumbent upon historians to make sure that we convey the importance of understanding the past and convey that history in a way that the public will find useful and usable.
That's beautifully said. I I concur in that I think people are more interested in history than certainly in my 30-year career. I think that there is a thirst, as Lonnie mentioned, for that context, for that understanding, for meaning, and also for that representation where they see themselves reflected in the histories we tell, that it's not something set in amber or fossilized, um, but that it is, it's living and it's a part of them, whether they have been here for you know, 10 years or 10,000 years, that they're all part of this incredible continuum of, of history in which they too, their actions can make a difference. And, and that history wasn't, is not preordained. You know, I think especially with, I remember that, you know, obviously the great loss last year of, of, of Congressman John Lewis, you know, who talks about his work and he said, we didn't know we were making history. We knew we had what we had to do that day, but we didn't know we were going to make history. And he went on to say, you never know what day you're going to make history. So I want to bring that sense of, of, of empowerment to, um, to the people that we serve, that they too can make history, that it's in their hands, not just mine and Lonnie's. Yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, the goal is to create new generations of people who believe they have a responsibility to help make a country better um, in any way they can. Um, and part of that, we hope, is by bringing out this history so they understand on whose shoulders they're standing, understand that um, the story of racial justice is a long struggle. And the notion that somehow you would get to the promised land of racial equality um, is really something that is still generations away. And so what you want is people to recognize that this is a long struggle, but it's a struggle where we've had amazing moments of change and possibility. As Congressman John Lewis used to always say to me, we don't have time to despair. There's too much to do to make a country better. I think it's also crucial for us to recognize that um, there's going to be a contested um, discussions around history. And so the, the, the more we're able to get history out, how people understand how historians do the work, understand the multiple points of view, the more we're going to be able to help a country understand that it's okay to have contested views of the past. What's key is to have those views shaped by scholarship um, and not by nostalgia or myths. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Sadly, I could talk to both of you wise people all day, um, but thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. I know that our audience enjoyed it. I very much did. And please uh, come back and join Washington Post Live tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern when my colleague Jackie Alamany will interview former Hewitt Packard CEO Carly Fiorina. Thank you again for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.